Let us pray. I'm most eternal and everlasting, Father. We are thankful this evening for your love and your mercy. We are thankful for this privilege that you've given us to assemble together and study a portion of your word. We recognize that the human mind is incapable of understanding anything that is spiritual apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So it's a request that the Holy Spirit will enable us to hear precisely what you have for us this evening. This is a request in Christ's name. Amen. We're now in Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 16. Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 6. It reads, The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow, I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses and Aaron and Horn went up to the uh, top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' had, uh, had hands grew tired, they took a stone and put under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and her held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady all till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekites' army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it the Lord is my banner. He said, for hands we are lifted up to the throne of the Lord. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Now this section of Exodus chapter 17 verses 8 through 16 is indeed concerned with the first of the many wars Israel fought as they conquered Canaan to settle in it in pursuant to the promise of the Lord to Abraham and his descendants through Isaac and Jacob. Now this, of course, is not the first that uh, an army had come after the Israelites. The Egyptian army was the first to attempt to attack, uh, to attack the uh, Israelites, but Israel was not ready to engage an enemy. So, the Lord fought for them and delivered them in a miraculous manner as he destroyed the Egyptian army by drowning them in the Red Sea. Now, nonetheless, our passage is concerned with the first time Israel was ready to fight a war. In effect, the Lord, in a way, not described, had presented them uh, and really have prepared them to be ready to fight a war. Now we say this because the reason the Lord took Israel through a long route to Canaan was simply because they were not yet ready to fight in a war as implied in what God said as recorded in Exodus chapter 13 verses 17 to 18. Exodus chapter 13, 
verses 17 through 18. It is, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. So based on this passage, we can then assert that the Lord had determined all that it was in his plan that the Israelites were not ready or not yet battle ready. So they went to war with the Amalekites now that they are battle ready, so to say. Now be that as we may, our section then is concerned with the war Israel waged against the Amalekites who were really the first uh, to attack them after they crossed the Red Sea and had moved around for some time in the desert. See, the war between the Israelites and Amalekites, uh, given in our passage of study, may be summarized as involving five paragraphs. Five paragraphs. The first paragraph is an introduction to the war, as given in verse 8. The second paragraph, described in verse 9, is concerned with Israel's preparation for battle with the Amalekites. The third paragraph consists of the execution of the war described in verses 10 through 12. Now, this paragraph focuses on the role of Joshua and Moses in the execution of the war. However, the majority of the paragraph actually focused on the role of Moses in the success of the war. Now, the role of Moses involved his holding uh, the staff of God in his hand. When he raised his hand, the Israelites were successful in the sense of winning the war, but when he relaxed it, the Israelites started to lose the war. Thus, to ensure that Israel continued to win and to eventually win the war, the hand of Moses was propped up by Aaron and Hur. Thus, the third paragraph is focused more on the action of Moses than that of Joshua, who was in the battlefield. Now, the fourth paragraph concerns Israel's victory, as stated in verse 13. The fifth and the last paragraph, described in verses 14 through 16, is concerned with the resultant actions following Israel's victory over the Amalekites. Now, the first of the paragraph, I mean, this, the first part of this fifth paragraph, concerns what the Lord instructed to Moses and what he promised regarding the Amalekites. The second part of the paragraph involves Moses' action of building an altar to the Lord and subsequent prophecy about the Amalekites. So we have, in effect, given an overview of the first war the Israelites fought against the Amalekites. Now the narrative as it reads, as we have already stated, is more focused on the action of Moses in the prosecution of the war than that of the commanding officer Joshua who was on the battlefield. Thus, we can say that the Holy Spirit wanted the reader to recognize that victory over the Amalekites required the working together of the physical and the spiritual components in execution of the war with greater emphasis on the spiritual component. 
Now these are things that once we get around them, then we can know what the Holy Spirit wants us to know. We have to know first what he's telling the group or what it's all about before we know how the message relates to us. So in effect then, the Holy Spirit focus more on the spiritual leader of Israel and his action during the prosecution of the war than on the battlefield commander. That immediately takes you the message. He focused on the spiritual leader more than the one in the battlefield. Now this fact then leads to an application message that we believe the Holy Spirit wants us to hear as we study this passage. Now before I state the message that will be personal to all of us, let me really make an observation that applies to any nation. It is this, that spiritual leaders are more important in any nation than politicians. Very simple. Because the world don't think that way. I think many of you may not even think that way too. But that's just what we have here. That spiritual leaders are more important than the politicians. In effect, if spiritual leaders fail to do what they're supposed to do, then everything goes wrong. Now, you can take this country, for example. All these men in the Congress, don't they have pastors? Most of them go to church every Sunday. They listen to their thinking. And you realize something is just not adding up. Because these pastors are not leading them. They're not teaching. They have truth, which no one wants to hear. We need to hear. And so, that is the way I can put it. If the spiritual leadership of any nation goes down, so the nation goes down. Not the politicians. I know most people think a politician can do anything for them. No, they can't. So if you're one of those, dissuade yourself of such a notion. Having said that, let's make it a little more personal. Now, I've given you more like a general application, but this is the message that is personal to each and every one of us. Now, this message is this. To be successful in any endeavor, you should combine the physical and the spiritual components of your life with greater focus on your spiritual life. Let me repeat that. That to be successful in any endeavor, you should combine the physical and the spiritual components of your life with greater focus on your spiritual life. So if you don't have a spiritual life, you're in trouble because there's nothing to focus on. Anyway, so this message does not mean, though, that you should not work hard in the physical aspects of whatever you are trying to achieve. Only that you must have your focus on the spiritual component of your life. Many have failed and they don't even know because they ignore the spiritual component of their life. And God cannot honor what he has more or less cost, in a sense. Because if you, if you ignore your spiritual love, you're cursed. So you want him to bless what he has cursed, that's not going to happen. So this is why many have failed in many, many things. Because their spiritual love wasn't important. I want to be clear again that what this message does not say. Again, it is not saying that you should not invest time in the physical aspect of your endeavor, but that you must be more focused on or in your spiritual life so that you do not rely on your wisdom or even in your training more 
than you rely on the Lord to guide you. Take for example, if you're a physician, you should be mindful of your training and skill in the sense that you should continue to improve your skills. But as you do so, you should recognize that the ultimate healer is the Lord. That you should have in your mind. Therefore, as you treat your patients, you should be very prayerful to the Lord to guide you to do the best you can do for that particular patient. Now, use uh, uh, the physician as an illustration. But the point is that whatever endeavor you are involving, you should not be sloppy and ignore fine-tuning your skills. But that after you have done so, you must pay closer attention to your spiritual life. Say anyway, as we expand on this narrative, we will see how the message unfolds and is applicable to you as a believer. Now we begin with the first paragraph that involves introduction as we stated. So verse 8 introduces the battle field in the war between Israelites and the Amalekites. However, there is a problem of the relationship of this battlefield to the miracle of providing water for Israel so that some uh, commentators take the position that the narrative that we have here is out of place or that the narrative was improperly inserted here. Now the problem is in part due to how the Hebrew particle that begins verse 8 should be interpreted. Now the Hebrew particle that we are dealing with is an important one. I mentioned it several times because, because several thousand times in the Hebrew text. But it has, it says a lot about what, the next, what is coming in a verse or in a sentence. See, the Hebrew line begins with a Hebrew particle that's often translated and in our English uh, versions. However, the Hebrew particle has several other usages. The question is how to translate it in verse 8 to relate to the previous section of the miracle of water. Now, there are three possibilities. The Hebrew particle may be translated and, and, as in some English versions, to indicate that Moses supplied another information regarding what happened while Israel was at Rephidim. That would be an interpretation to supply another thing that happened. Another translation is with the uh, using the word now, as we find in some of our English versions, to convey that the event of the war occurred about the same time as the miracle of the water that the Lord provided to Israel uh, from the rock at Horeb. Still, Another translation or interpretation is to translate then. As some English versions, uh, probably to indicate that the battle is sequential to the miracle of the provision of water from the rock at Horeb. Those are the three possible interpretations. Well, each of these uh, uh, translation or interpretation makes sense. And so, it may just be that Moses wanted to convey to us the order uh, the, that another thing that happened about the same time. And so, 
they haven't about the same time as that miracle of the Lord providing water to Israel, that may be considered to be sequential to the miracle of water supplied at the rock at Horeb, and that is, of course, that is the Israel's war with the Amalekites. So, all three combined, and many times, people say it must be one or the other. It all depends on uh, some, uh, what it is that the Holy Spirit intends. And my, my point is always very simple. Why do we have the four Gospels? Very simple. Why not one? Because it takes the four of them to capture, to an extent, the work of Christ. So, all three here come together to make the, the point the Holy Spirit wants through the Apostle. I mean, through uh, uh, Moses here. Consequently then, the people could go uh, as far as we see here. The situation would have been that while Israel camped at Rephidim, that was at the outskirts of the desert of Sinai, their water source was located some distance outside their camp. Consequently, the people would go daily to the water source and fetch water that they needed. Now, it was during this time that the battle described in the passage that we are about to consider occurred. Now, the battle would have, would have actually taken place while Israel was moving from their camp at Rephidim to the desert of Sinai. Now, we say this because Moses, in his farewell address or speech, apply, uh, implied that it was while Israel was on the move from Rephidim that the Amalekites attacked them from their rear, as we read in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 through 18. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 through 18. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 through 18. It reads, Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt, when you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and cut off all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. So it was probably as they were in the move that they, they attacked. Now, be that as it may, those who first attacked Israel on their travel. To Canaan, after they crossed the Red Sea, where the Amalekites, as then the first sentence of where we are starting, Exodus 17, verse 8 reads. It says, it reads, The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites. Now, it is interesting that the first people that attacked the Israelites, once they crossed the Red Sea, were the Amalekites. Very interesting. Well, what's interesting about it? You may ask. Well, it is that the sentence continued the rivalry between Jacob and Esau that was evident in the book of Genesis. It continued the rivalry. You say, how? Well, we say this because, see, Israelites are the descendants of Jacob, while the Amalekites were the descendants of Esau. Through his grandson, Amalek, as we read in Genesis chapter 36, verse 12. So this is a family dynamics, so to say even though it's separated by several generations. But that rivalry, 
between Jacob and Esau continue to play out. It is here. Yeah? So you can see. He said, Esau's son, Eliphaz, also had a concubine named Timnah, who bore him Amalek. These were grandsons of Esau's wife, Eda. So, the Amalekite from Esau. Israelite from Jacob. The first attack by those from the same father, really. Although they are separated now by several generations. So that's what makes it interesting to me that that will be the first attack. Their brother, so to say. Of course, you know that dry rivalry was sponsored by Satan. No doubt about that. Overall, anyway. Now the Amalekites were notably enemies of the Israelites. Consequently, they had several military encounters with Israel. The first being the one we are about, we are about to consider. Now, about a year later, they defeated the Israelites who attacked them after ignoring Moses' instruction not to attack since they had displeased the Lord by accepting the report of the ten spies Moses sent to explore the land of Canaan. See, these men, they came back and said, oh, these are big giants. We, we're done. We're like little ants before them. Joshua and Caleb said, no, 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 let's walk by faith. And the rest of them intimidated the whole camp and they started whining and complaining and Moses rebuked him after they said, no, no, we're not going to go to war. Moses said, no, you don't go because you are not, God is not with you. They won't pay attention. And that is what happened as recorded in Numbers chapter 14, verses 43 through 45. Numbers chapter 14 verses 43 through 45. He reads, For the Amalekites, and Canaanites will face you there. That's what Moses wanted them. Because you have turned away from the Lord, he will not be with you, and you will fall by the sword. Nevertheless, in their presumption, they went up toward the hill country. Though neither Moses nor the ark of the Lord's covenant moved from the camp. They were on their own, first to say. Then the Amalekites and Canaanites, who lived in that hill, uh, hill country, came down and attacked them and beat them down all the way to Homer. So they defeated them, even though the previous, uh, probably a year before that, they, the, the Israelites defeated the Amalekites. But that's because God was with them. Now he wasn't, and they suffered defeat in their hands. Now, in the period of the judges, though, the Amalekites joined Eglon, king of Moab, to attack Israel, as we read in Judges, chapter 3, verse 13. Judges, hold on to Judges. Chapter 3. Verse 13. It reads, Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. Now in the days of Gideon, the Amalekites teamed up with the Midianites and others to harass the Israelites 
as we read in that Judges chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. Judges chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. It is whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and all the eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel. Neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their things like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. So they caused a lot of headache for Israel. Now in time of King Saul, Prophet Samuel ordered Saul to utterly destroy the Amalekites. And Saul claimed to have destroyed them, all of them but spared their king Agag, as we recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 7 through 9. 1 Samuel Now hold on to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel Chapter 15, verse uh, 7 reads, Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from uh, Hevila to Shur, to the east of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. And all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. They Saul and the army spared Agag and the base of the sheep and cattle. The fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely with everything that was despised and weak. They totally destroyed. Now apparently, despite the assertion of Saul destroying the Amalekites, it seems that many of them escaped so that they regrouped, because they were wandering people, more like nomads in a way. We say this because if they were totally destroyed, then we have a problem with the record of David reading them prior to assuming the kingship of Israel, as we read in 4 Samuel chapter 27, verse 8. For Samuel. Chapter 27, verse 8. It reads, Now David and his men went up and read the uh, Geshorites, the Gazettes, and the Amalekites. From ancient times, these people had lived in the land extending to shore and Egypt. So, here... If the Amalekites were worked out, here they still remaining in time of King David. Now, furthermore, though, the remnant of the Amalekites that were destroyed, they were the ones destroyed in the time of King Hezekiah, many uh, hundred years later, as we read in First Chronicles chapter four, verses forty to forty-three. First Chronicles, chapter 4, verses 40 through 43. It reads, They found rich, good pasture, and the land was spacious, peaceful, and quiet. 
some Hamites had lived there formerly. The men whose names were uh, listed came in in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah. They attacked the Hamites in their dwellings and also the Muenites who were there and completely destroyed them as is evident to this day. Then they settled in their place because there was pasture for their flocks. And 500 of these Simeonites uh, led by Peletiah, uh, Nerea, uh, Raphael, and Uzel, the sons of Ishi, invaded the hill country of Seir. They killed the remaining Amalekites who had escaped and they had lived there to this day. So that probably came to a boys where they were almost wiped out, almost. But still, some of them still left struggling, uh, getting around somewhere. So anyway, it was because of the Amalekites attacked them of Israel at Rephidim that they were placed under permanent course and those to be, dis- uh, to be destroyed by the Israelites as recorded in that Deuteronomy chapter 25 look at verse 19 now Deuteronomy 25 verse 19 Deuteronomy Chapter 25, verse 19. It is, When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land he has given you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. Because we don't have a CNN when this thing was taking place to report to the whole world. Look at these people are trying to wipe these people out of the planet. Or on this media, whatever it is. So, does God do that something today? Yeah, he does. We just don't know. People don't think so. He can say, wipe out a group of people. For whatever reason. But people will scream and yell and all that. Anyway. So in any event, the Amalekites were the first to attack the Israelites at Rephidim. Now the location of the battle, a battlefield of the battle between Israel and the Amalekites is identified as Rephidim. In the verbal phrase of Exodus 17, verse 8, where we're starting, because he said, attack the Israelites at Rephidim. So it is this battlefield, that's another reason some commentators take the position that the narrative of the war between the Israelites and the Amalekites, given in chapter 17 of Exodus, it's out of place because of this place Rephidim. Now they assert that the Amalekites were not living near Rephidim at the time of the Exodus because of such passage as Numbers chapter 13 verse 29. Numbers Numbers chapter 13, verse 29. Based on this, they say, well, you know, they were nowhere near that place, so that must be out of place. Anyway, it reads, the Amalekites live in the Negev. Negev was far from Rephidim, whatever, according to them. The Hittites, Jebusites, and the Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Now this passage, notwithstanding though, 
does not necessarily mean that the Amalekites were confined to Negev, since they were nomadic people that moved also from place to place, attacking and, and raiding other cities at that time. You know, people just because they don't know what the Bible says, or because they don't know history, they think that terrorism is a new thing on the planet. Because if you apply the Bible, nothing is new under the sun. There are people, that's just how they lived at that time. Or they just terrorize people and capture their things. It's not like one person is just a group of them, an army, and that's all they did. And that's what some of these people were doing, the Amalekites. They come to a place, ready, and uh, destroy people. Because they do what we call usually the element of surprise that I'm going to make a comment a little bit uh, later in the study. So, they, the people who say because of Negev, and we say, no, that cannot be true because they're nomadic people. Besides, we really do not know the exact location of Rephidim or even Sinai. So, it is difficult to use this passage of uh, Numbers or one similar to it, to assert that the narrative of the war between Israel and the Amalekites in the 17th chapter of Exodus is out of place. In other words, they say it was placed you know, in the wrong place. It should have been placed somewhere else, whatever that is. But they say this location is wrong. And anyway, the attack of the Amalekites on Israel was such that the element of surprise that is useful in military conflict seem to be absent. Now, see, that's one of the things I, I just never can understand people in this country. Really. They want to know everything. And yet they have leaders. They clamor, tell us what you're going to do. You, as soon as you remove the element of surprise in a military uh, kind of conflict, you can't succeed. That is the thing that gets people the element of surprise. That's what generals say. That's what they plan for. So you're not expected. Now I'll give you an example. You can have all kinds of weapons in your house. If you are caught by surprise, that's not a thing you can do. That's what's called element of surprise. But you know, everyone wants, I want to know what's going on. You don't need to. If you trust your leaders, let them do what they're supposed to do. They don't have to telegraph anything. But, you know, when you telegraph it, the people you're trying to reach, they already know what you're going to do. They prepare. Or they hide. And nothing is effective. You know, so this, this thing that we think is, is so great is part of the thing that's destroying us. We would like to know everything. So, for this case, the element of surprise was lost. That's why the Amalekites could not do the way they, uh, of course, God orchestrated all that, though. In order that they would not succeed. Now, we say that the element of surprise was lost because of Israel's preparation for battle with them. See, if the Israelites had no advance warning of the attack, they would have been completely overrun by them. Now, as it is, as it stood... Israel had time to prepare to respond to the attack of the Amalekites. So this brings us to the second paragraph of the narrative of the war between Israelites and the Amalekites that is concerned with Israel's preparation to respond to the attack of the Amalekites. Now Israel's preparation involved the actions of Joshua. And Moses, direct, Moses in this case, Moses' directive, and of Moses himself uh, being involved. Now the action of Joshua, as directed by Moses, was assembling soldiers that fought the war. Now this we gather from the instruction of Moses as we read in Exodus chapter 17 verse 9. Which where we're standing says, when Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Now this, the sentence 
Moses said to Joshua, it's a reminder that the, that scripture is not a history book that is concerned with detailed information or even of recording events in chronological fashion, although in some situations events are recorded chronologically. Now the Old Testament scripture in particular is more concerned with providing necessary information to present a given narrative to convey the message the Holy Spirit through a human author wants us to know are not necessarily all the details we want. Now, it is because of this fact that some ignorant individuals deride the, the scriptures records of increasing population of the world from one man, Adam. They deride that. Now, the, these critics say something like this. If Adam had two sons, where did they get their wives? That sounds smart, right? Does they imply that there is something deficient in the scripture because we are not told how Cain or Seth got married. In other words, such individuals said, if Adam and Eve were the first women on this planet, they had two sons that were responsible for the uh, populating of the world. Then the question, where the two sons obtained their wives? Now such question, of course, reveals a lack of understanding that the Bible is not concerned with every detail that we are concerned with. But with providing the information necessary to convey the message God wants to communicate to us. Nevertheless, or nonetheless, a careful examination of the scripture will reveal that Adam had other sons beside the two often mentioned. Furthermore, that there is nothing untrue that Cain and said were married. They married their sisters. Now, we know this, that Adam had daughters, according to Genesis chapter 5, verse 4. Genesis chapter 5, verse 4. Hold on to Genesis. It is after Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Now, since Adam had daughters, it is not difficult to conclude that these daughters must have been married by their brothers. Something permissible at that time. Now, in fact, even after the flood, we have a clear example of a man marrying his half-sister. Abraham married half-sister Sarah. That is the reason he told her to say that she is his sister instead of the wife when they went to Egypt or when they went to Gerar. However, it was in Gerar that Abraham actually explained to Abimelech that Sarah was indeed his half-sister as we read in Genesis chapter 20 verse 12. Genesis 20 verse 12 reads, Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother. And she became my wife. So what Abraham said makes it easier then to see that Adam's sons married their sisters. Therefore, those who deride the biblical accounts of how humans populated the earth are wrong and uninformed. Now, why this digression? You may ask. Well, it is because I said 
that the sentence of Exodus 17 verse 9, Moses said to Joshua, is a reminder that the scripture is not a history book that is concerned with detailed information or even the recording of events chronologically. Although in some situations, events are recorded chronologically. Now the reason I say this is because this is the first time in the Old Testament scripture we hear of a man, Joshua. Now so far in the narrative of Exodus, only Moses and Aaron have been introduced as leaders of Israel. Now the elders of Israel have been introduced as implied leaders of the uh, people, but we do not have any of their names singled out at this point. Thus, it is interesting that Joshua was introduced without any comment about him at this point in the narrative. Now you see, if, if the scripture was concerned with every kind of information that we will want, we'll have had some form of introduction before mentioning the name Joshua. But that was not the case. However, from other passages of the scripture, we know a few things about him that will warrant him being mentioned at this point in the narrative of Israel with the uh, war with the Amalekites. And Joshua, his original name was Hosea. Hosea. But Moses changed that name to Joshua according to Numbers chapter 13 verse 16. Numbers chapter 13 Verse 16. It reads, These are the names of men Moses sent to explore the land. Moses gave Hosea, the son of Nun, the name Joshua. Now Moses did not provide any specific reason for such a change of name, as we find, for example, in the other occasions where uh, an individual's name uh, was changed, granting that that name change was from uh, usually by God. Now the Lord changed uh, uh, Jacob's name to Israel with an explanation as we read in Genesis chapter 32 verse 28. Genesis chapter 32 Verse 28. It reads, Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Now this aside, though, Moses changed Hosea to Joshua without any explanation. Nonetheless, there are a possible reasons for the change in name by Moses. That the two names, Hosea and Joshua, came from the same Hebrew root that means to save or to deliver. However, the name uh, Joshua, uh, Yehoshua, uh, really it contains a Hebrew word that we may say Y, we take the letter Y, it's a Hebrew word Yod, but uh, uh, that word means that it has a reference to the name Yahweh. Hence, the difference indicates that the name Joshua means the Lord helps. The Lord helps. While Hosea simply means help. Of course, there are uh, other ways the differences uh, uh, can be accounted for, explained by the fact remains that the change of name implies that the Lord will, will do something that involves deliverance through Joshua. Now, we do not know how Joshua came to be in touch with Moses. But we are informed that from his youth, he has been an assistant to Moses, according to Numbers chapter 11, verse 28. Numbers 
11 verse 28. I hold on to numbers. I may probably not read that one anyway. Numbers. Chapter 11 verse 28 reads, Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' aide since youth, spoke up and said, Moses, my Lord, stop them. He saw people prophesying, he said, stop them. <laughs> so anyway, as we have stated, though, there is no information as how Joshua came into contact with Moses to cause him to be described as his assistant. The only thing we can, be, we can say is that the Holy Spirit guided Moses to select him as his assistant because of God's plan for him. Now Joshua was going to succeed Moses as Israel's leader so that the Lord instructed Moses to commission him as the one that would take over from him as described in Numbers chapter 27 verses 17 through 21. Numbers, chapter 27, verses 17 through 21 reads, To go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in, so the lost people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, son of Nun, a man in whom is his spirit, and lay your hand on him. Have him stand before Eliezer the priest and the entire assembly and commission him in their presence. Give him some of your authority so that the whole Israelite community will obey him. He is to stand before Eliezer the priest who will obtain decision for him by inquiring of the Urim before the Lord. At his command, uh, and the entire community of the Israel will go out, and at his command, they will come in. So the, this passage really implies that Joshua then had the Spirit of God uh, be, before he was commissioned by Moses because he has already, uh, he was described in verse 18 with that clause, a man with, in, in whom is the Spirit. Now part of the presence of the Spirit of God in Joshua is the gift of wisdom. That no doubt is necessary to lead a stubborn people, Israel, after taking the helm of leadership from Moses. Now this, that he had the gift of wisdom, is referenced by Moses in his final speech, farewell, farewell speech to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 34 verse 9. Deuteronomy chapter 34 verse 9. It reads, Now Joshua son of Nun was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites listened to him and they were the Lord had commanded Moses. Now in any case, the sentence of Exodus 17 verse 9 that we're studying, we say, Moses said to Joshua, Introduced Joshua for the first time in the narrative of Exodus. As we have stated, uh, bringing the name Joshua without any introduction supports then our statement that the sentence Moses said to Joshua is a reminder that the scripture is not a history book that is concerned with detailed information or even recording events chronologically, although in some situations, uh, events are recorded chronologically, no doubt. Now there is more though to this. Now the sentence conveys to us that the Lord is in control of all things and direct events in accordance with his plan. Now Joshua is put at the forefront of Israel's first battle as indicated by the instruction Moses gave him. Now this is probably to tell us that God's plan called for Joshua to be one that will be the commander of Israel's army after Moses died. And so it was necessary for him to be in training, so to say, while Moses was still around. Now the instruction of Moses to Joshua required him to assemble Israel's 
forced army to attack the Amalekites as the command of Exodus 17 verse 9 where it says, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Now there's more to this command. Right? We're out of time, so we'll pick up this in our next study. But let me remind you of the message of this section, which is to be successful in any endeavor, you should combine the physical and the spiritual components of your life with greater focus on the spiritual component of your life. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the study of your word. We pray that God, the Holy Spirit, will cause us to recognize the importance of our spiritual life in any endeavor on this planet that's going to be successful. We pray that God, the Holy Spirit, will drill this truth in our soul. This is a request in Christ's name. Amen.